bright, brilliant sunshine melting the snow pretty fast out there. So by the time we finish potluck, you'll step in mud on the way home, I'm sure. But uh, thankful for the precipitation, all the rain we got plus the snow on top of it. Always good in the desert. I, I don't complain about precip in the desert. It's uh, always welcome, even if I'm comfortable sometimes. Well, I'm going to skip along today, I think, uh, not cover every verse as we go through some of the rest of where we've been going here in Isaiah, because my overall theme here is to give a description of the end-time work. Now, Isaiah 40 on has everything to do with that, but to describe it to us, I don't think we need to hit every verse, uh, but we need to get an overview of what needs to be done. So, uh, you have the end of Herbert Armstrong's work, or God's work through him, uh, in Isaiah 39. And the next thing significant in the work of God that will occur, or has or will be occurring, is occurring, I should say, I guess, is a message of comfort to the church which has been scattered. And tell her that the warfare is over or almost over, the iniquity is pardoned, and that God is going to give double blessing. And this is to be done in the wilderness. Uh, a voice will cry and let us know what's going on. And God's glory is going to be revealed very shortly. Uh, it's a, In a way, it's a two-part message. First of all, that mankind's way of living on this earth is over, that the flesh, the people, are going to wither as grass, and that is a message of gloom to the world. But to the church, in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 40, uh, good tidings of good things to come, and that God is going to deliver with His strong hand, and we will be able to behold our God. So He is going to become very, very active in what is going on here quite shortly. It take care of His flock. Then He shows that all nations before Him are nothing, that He will strengthen those who are to be, that He's going to bring us a leader from the north who will come from the east, he tells us to work and encourage one another and not to fear because he's with us and he will take care of our enemies. We've gone over this and how he will plant seven trees or seven churches in the wilderness, uh, the remains of all seven attitudes of the churches of Revelation. And he's going to be telling us about the latter end of it at verse 22. So, he goes through and tells us new things are coming, that no one has this message except one to whom he gave it to give out to others, and that even his major leader at the end of chapter 42 or near there is going to be blind and deaf to a lot of what is going on, even though he's a righteous man, and then he's going to wake up and see and hear and come and do the job. So uh, these are all things that are either already happening or will happen very shortly. We came down to chapter 43, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll skip through some of this, catching the highlights. He tells us here that He has formed us. He called us out of the world. He's taught us the truth. And He tells us, Fear not, for I have redeemed you and called you by My name, and you belong to Me. So God takes care of His belongings. And since we belong to Him, He says He will take care of us. Now, He does not say throughout the Bible that He's going to take care of anyone except those whom He has called and chosen and brought out to do the rest of His work. He even tells us, as we've seen in many places, He's going to send most of the church into the tribulation, but only draw out a 10% remnant who will be faithful to do His work. So that's who He's talking to here, is those that He is about to draw. Those who are here to help prepare for them, and then they who come. And He says... He will protect them. Verse 2, if there's floods or fire or whatever, uh, it won't hurt you. He's going to take care of us, like He did Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like He did Daniel, like He has done others. So, He says in verse 4, You were precious in My sight, and have been honorable, and I've loved you, so I will give men for you and people for your life. He's going to sacrifice others and save those who have been faithful out and protect them. So he says again in verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bring your seed from the east, from the west, the north, and hold not back the south, my daughters and my sons, uh, from the entire earth, or the from the ends of the earth, is what he says. Even everyone that is called... By my name. So this is only going to be those that he's called out and chosen. He says it in a different way in Haggai. He says, I will stir them to come and build a temple, which is part of the end time work that has to be done. So he will bring them. He says he's created us for his glory. I formed him. Yes, I have made him. He's formed and made the church. He's made the flock. And he will take care of it. And he says then the nations will come and be assembled. Uh, And he says, let them say that this is true. God is going to make it very clear what he is doing. Now in verse 10 he says, you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. So all those he calls and stirs to come and finish the end time work are his witnesses that he is God. He says it again in verse 12, I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. The world has forgotten who God is. They have no clue who God is. They have no clue who they think they worship as Jesus Christ. They don't know the real Christ. They know the false Christ, Satan, even as Christians. And the Muslims and the Shintoists and everybody else have false gods, which ultimately are Satan. So nobody on earth, except those few whom God has called out, truly understand who God is. And we have to be the only witness on earth that He is God. 
We know the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet will be rising very, very shortly now. In fact, I think already are, and we're beginning to see an outline develop. And they will be worshiping Satan. They don't know who God is. So the job of the church is to sit in Zion as a light to the world that God is God. You, we, will be the only witnesses on this earth that God is God. The only ones who know Him. I hope we realize and grasp and comprehend that. Because if we're the only witnesses that He is God, we need to be good witnesses. We need to be true witnesses. And that's why He's only going to call 10% out of what was the church to be that witness. He says in verse 14, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. Uh, Revelation 18 talks about how those who are trading in ships are going to stand back in awe at the destruction of this country, Babylon, the modern Babylon, and how they will cry and wail and moan that their business has been destroyed because America is no longer here to be their consumer. So this is talking about the same events that are occurring in Revelation 18, except that Revelation 18 only gives one small warning there, really, to his people, is to come out of her and be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. The rest of it is devoted to the destruction of this nation which has come to represent Babylon, and we are here to represent God. So he says, get out of there, go into the wilderness, there I will protect you and deliver you, there in Micah 4. Verse 10, or 19, Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I'll even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So he tells us as humans to give a message of comfort and to prepare a way for God. But when it's all said and done, He's the one that makes the way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We can come and do a very small human part of that. But it's Him that has to do the miracles that create the conditions in which He can cause the world to look at what He is doing and the witnesses that he has brought forth. And he says, The beasts of the field shall honor me, and the dragons and owls, because I will give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. Now, I think this is both physical and spiritual. He brings us into a wilderness so that he can make it beautiful. Des the roses will bloom in the desert, and Isaiah 35, and so on. But it's, so it's physical and spiritual as well, because we know from Zechariah 4 that the two witnesses will be there to feed true doctrine and correct teaching to his people. So it's, it's both ways. This people have I formed for myself, for they shall show forth my praise. So he's called us and brought us and prepared us to praise him when the whole world 
worships the beast. And says the whole world will worship the beast and take its mark, except those very few who will serve God. Now, some who were part of the church will not take that mark of the beast, but they will be killed in the tribulation. Only the 10% that he calls out to finish the work, to do a new work, he just said, I will do a new thing, a new work, something you've not seen before. And I formed a people to do it. And then he says, he has been weary of us because we haven't really put him first. Idolatry is anything that you put ahead of God. And it is human to put all kinds of things in front of God. But he says in verse 25, I'm the one that blots out your transgressions. You know, the wages of sin is death. So, worship me who forgives sin so you don't have to die. For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead or talk or discuss this together. So he's written it here in Isaiah, and here we are today to plead with him, to talk with him. He says, declare you that you may be justified. Then he gives us a little insight into our recent history. Your first father has sinned, and your teachers have transgressed against me. Herbert Armstrong, to one degree or another, sinned. And what he did not do, or did not finish or accomplish, uh, went away. It didn't grow the way God intends the latter temple to be. It was God's church, it was God's work, he was God's leader. But he was not perfect, and there were some things that were not done, that needed done, and done that shouldn't have been done in Worldwide Church of God, and that's why it got blown apart. He says, your teachers have transgressed against me. So he holds the ministry uh, in, uh, to account for that. Read Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi, and you'll see that he indicts the ministry very heavily for what happened in the church. Uh, we should not have allowed that to happen. We should have been stronger. We should have preached better. We should have lived better than we did. And helped the people to be what they ought to be. So he lays it at the door of the ministry to a great degree. And the ministry needs to be aware of that. He says, Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse in Israel to reproach. That is, spewed us out of his mouth. He's speaking of spiritual Israel here. He hasn't formed this physical nation to serve him and to do the work. This physical nation is about to be destroyed, in fact, as the incarnation of Babylon that it is. It is only his people that he's going to bring out. Remember what he said back there, I think, a week or two ago? You few men of Israel, not very many, you few men of Jacob, I think he put it. Chapter 44, so he says, yet now here, listen up, Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Now, he hasn't chosen this nation. He hasn't made it his servant. Israel does not serve God today. 
Now, this is a prophecy that will be fulfilled again in its final fulfillment in the millennium when Jacob again becomes God's servant. But premillennial, only the church is represented here. That should be very clear. Tells us to fear not again in verse 2. Uh, verse 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed and my blessing upon your offspring. So our children, everybody who will follow him and that he has chosen will be blessed. They'll spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. And people will call themselves by God's name instead of by the things of this world. Verse 7, And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people? And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show them. He says, Who knows this story? Since I dealt with the ancient people, now I've appointed and chosen a new people, a very small few people to represent me. Where, where can you find this story? Fear you not, he says again. Now you're beginning to get the feeling here as often as he says fear not, that there's going to be a lot of stuff to fear, a lot of stuff out there that's scary. And yet he says, turn to me in faith and don't fear. Trust me, I will take care of you, he says. Now, do we believe him, or are we going to see these things begin to happen and cower in fear? No, he doesn't want us to fear. He wants us right out there as witnesses to the world of who he is. Fear you not, he says again in verse 8, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? He says it again. You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. Now, there's three times that he tells us we are his witnesses. Things have to be established, or were in the Old Testament, by two or three witnesses. Now, here he says three times that we, the whole group, will be his witnesses that he is God and will be the only one. There will be no other witnesses of who God is. All these Protestants, all these so-called Christians and Catholics are going to join the beast power. They'll take the mark so that they can eat. You will not. You will be taken somewhere and fed and protected. And we know where. Jerusalem, and then when it is taken over, we'll go to Zion, and there God will protect us. I'll not go through uh, much of the rest of this chapter because uh, he describes the idols that people have made and how they worship them instead of him. Uh, that's important to realize the whole world is worshiping idols, uh, but it is not in particular what I want to cover with us to understand what we need to be doing. The world is worshiping idols. We're not. 
And he spends quite a bit of time there talking about that. Let's go to verse 21. He says, Remember you, O Jacob and Israel, that's spiritual Israel and Jacob, the church, for you are my servant. I have formed you. He says it again, over and over. I'm the one who made you. I'm the one that created the church. I'm the one that started it. And he's talking to those from Isaiah 40 on, whom he's called to either prepare and be here, or ultimately those who will be called to join them in order to do the work. So this is all about what is about to happen, already is and will in a greater degree. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I walked out, what, two or Two days ago, I guess it was, in the afternoon, and maybe some of you saw it. There was the biggest, most beautiful, brilliant rainbow I think I have ever seen. Just, I mean, the the legs came up and went down, and it was kind of a double rainbow, but the front one was so brilliant, I, I maybe I've seen one that brilliant, but it's been a long time. Like a cloud, our transgressions are removed, and that rainbow is there to remind us of what? God's protection. And after Noah's flood, he created the rainbow. No one had seen one until then. And when we see it, it represents his protection over us. So as the clouds begin to disperse, the rainbow appears, like And then the clouds dissipate and the rainbow goes as well. But it's there to remind us that there is a God. So he says in verse 23, Sing, O you heavens, for the Eternal has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Eternal God has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So he speaks of us as being a forest, or as trees, as symbols of man, but we're the ones that he is glorifying himself in. He will show his glory through us. Now that's not speaking of physical Israel again. I think it should be obvious, because he said that it is going into famine and pestilence, and war, and captivity. So he's got to be speaking to those whom he's called out to do his work. They're the ones that can sing. They can sing from Zion, the glory of God, once they are safely ensconced in the place of refuge. God says, I'm the one that makes all things, verse 24, that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad, that turns wise men backward, and makes their knowledge foolish. Now, it's interesting the way he puts that. You've got these people in the world who are making idols. They're worshiping a false god. He tells his witnesses, his remnant church, how he blots out their sins, and they need to sing his praise and glory. And then he says what he is going to do will frustrate the liars, and make diviners mad, that turn wise men, smart men backward, and make their knowledge foolish. 
Now, he's about to tell us something here he is going to do. And what he is about to tell us is what's going to make them look foolish. They don't believe there is a living God. They don't believe that He is powerful. And they will believe in the beast and the false prophet and in Satan, the whole world. But what He is going to do is going to frustrate them greatly. Now, what is it that He's talking about? Let's read on. Well, before we do, what is the world expecting? Well, I guess they're expecting the Jews to build a temple in the Jerusalem in the Middle East. They're expecting an Antichrist to come. Some are. They're also expecting the nation in the middle of Israel to be a peaceful place. Their expectations are all over there. And even those who are Christian and use the name of Christ, whether they worship Satan or not, think that it's all going to happen over there. So, that's what the guys that wrote all the commentaries believe. They're the smart men who wrote those. There's a lot of smart people. And they have their expectations of the future. Something is going to throw a monkey wrench in their plans and their expectations. Now let's move on. He says, I'm God, and I'm going to confound them and make them look foolish. That confirms the word of his servant. So God says, I am going to confirm the words of my servant. The things that we are reading about here are going to be confirmed. The things that have been being preached since 1996, once understood are going to be confirmed. And performs the counsel of his messengers. So, who are his messengers? Those witnesses whom he has sent. Particularly maybe those who do the speaking, but all of us together. Now, what is that confirmation and what is to be performed? He tells us right here, that says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Now there already you have a discrepancy between what the world thinks and what will be, because they expect Jerusalem over there to become the center of holiness and the Jews to build that temple, and God to bless that area. But here it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Well, I've been to Jerusalem, Israel, and it is teeming with people. It is inhabited. Lots and lots of traffic and people there. Now, he tells us that the true Jerusalem in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places here in Isaiah as well, will be desolate for many generations and no one will live there. So the Jerusalem that God is talking about is one that the world doesn't know about. Okay? It's uninhabited. 
he says it will become inhabited. Right here at the end. And the, the cities of Judah, they'll be built. That means they aren't built. Now you go over to the Middle East, and I've traveled all over that nation of Israel, and I've seen all these Bible names on the towns that are there, all over the place. They were put there by men who were not even Christian and weren't there in the days prior to Christ. Helen, Constantine's mother in the 300s, went over and named those in a two-week trip. Supposedly found them and then named them. The names you see on them today. Well, here he says the cities of Judah will have to be built and the decayed places restored. So this is talking about somewhere other than over there. And you and I know that it's over here in the American Southwest. So, be built and inhabited. Verse 27, that says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Now this is God saying this, that his word that he sent will be confirmed and established and done. And he's calling on what he has done in the past to help us understand that. He told the sea to be dry and Moses and his people walked through. He told the Jordan to back up, and Joshua and his people walked through. Now he is comparing what he is going to do here at the end to that kind of miracle. Okay? That says of Cyrus, he introduces someone here, apart from his messengers, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Now, he said something similar to that about Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had a job to do, even though he was a Gentile king, and with Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach there, uh, some works were done. And those men stood up against Nebuchadnezzar and said, We will not bow down to your image, O great king. So here you have Cyrus, and in biblical history, this Cyrus is the son of Ahasuerus, who was the wife of Esther in the book of Esther. So this Cyrus is half Israelite, in, in history at least, through Esther, and part Gentile through the Persian king Ahasuerus. But he was the one that took over when uh, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar died, Belteshazzar was killed, and, and then uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, took over. Now, what did Cyrus, king of Persia, do? He worked with Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, to do what? Rebuild the temple and to build the walls of Jerusalem. Read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to see the story laid out. We've been there, so I'm not going there now. But this is the end-time fulfillment. He says of this Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. 
That means the things that God says that this man is to do, he will do, whether he likes it or not. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. The one in the Middle East does not need to be built. It's still there. The walls are there. People are living in it. They're living all around it through the larger city of Jerusalem, the modern one. Hundreds and thousands of people. You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now we see in Zechariah 4 that Zerubbabel, one of the leader of God's two, is going to lay the foundation of the temple. But he's also saying to this person here that he says to the temple, your foundation will be laid. Two different personalities here. I'll prove that to you in just a moment. Because the one who is in Zechariah 4 is Zerubbabel, is God's servant, raising up the church and preaching and teaching truth to God's people. This one is not, because it says down here in just a few more verses that he doesn't know God. It says it more than once. Zerubbabel, God's servant, knows God. And he has laid the foundation of the temple or the church. But a physical temple also has to be built. And that's the one that Cyrus is dealing with. Uh, and to Jerusalem it shall be built. I believe that I know this man. And he sat in his house when he was living over in uh, north of Cedar City. And he said to me, the temple and Jerusalem must be built right here in Iron County. Now, since then, he's decided it needs to be in Kane County. But he doesn't understand all of this. But he sat right there and said it, and I nearly fainted, because I hardly knew him. I hadn't known him but maybe a couple, three weeks when he said that to me. But he's already said it. <laughs> I heard it. Now let's go on and get more detail on this. Thus says the Eternal to his anointed. He's ordained this man to do something for him. We're going to see he's a pagan. He doesn't know God. Doesn't know God at all, in fact. I've been around him now for 12 years. And I can assure you he has no clue who God is. Okay? So what we're going to read here is all true. But that doesn't mean he hasn't anointed or ordained or set him apart to do something. He's done that with Gentile kings before. He says, whose right hand I have held. So this Cyrus, God has taken by the right hand and has guided him, taken care of him. I have held to subdue, subdue nations before him. He is going to have a part in doing what? Subduing nations. What did it say up there in verse 25 of the previous chapter? He's going to make the liars and the fools of this world look like absolute idiots. Make fools of all of them. So that's part of what God is going to use this spiritual Gentile, to do. How? 
I will loose the loins of kings. That expression in the scripture means I'm going to scare them desperately. When their loins are loosed, it means they mess their pants. That's how scared they're going to be. Let's put this in English we can understand. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two hinged or leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, I find this very interesting, having been dealing with this situation now since 2007 early. We've done a lot of digging to try to find the things of God that he's going to talk about here in a moment. And have had difficulty in so doing, but I think that God has held this man's hand and has led him to the place. Undoubtedly. I've seen too much evidence. But does he open it himself? Now, I've, this question has gone through my mind quite a few times over the years. But let's just sort of today take it as it's written and see what that might tell us. I will open the, or loose the loins of kings, God says, by what God does. Men can't scare the world. God can. To open before him the two hinged gates. Now this appears that God is going to do the opening. Not some people digging tunnels. Isn't that what it says? That I will open before him the leave gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, once God opens this, then, it appears that it cannot be shut. It's open. Now, the man that I've been dealing with keeps thinking we need to find this, and we have to keep it very quiet because... The Spanish and the Indians of the U.S. and the Muslims and the, not the Muslims, the, the Jesuits, the Catholics, everybody's going to be after these treasures when they're discovered. So he's afraid. And what he wants to do, once he finds it, is to immediately cover it up and hide it. So that all these people won't come to try to get it. Well, what does this say? I will open before him the gates, and they shall not be shut. Now, I used my imagination in thinking about that a little this morning. What if instead of some of us moles digging a tunnel and finding a way in, which I think we're very close to doing, what if when the time, because this man also has just now backed off again, he's done that, saying, well, I don't think it's quite time, and if, if we get in there, then they're going to come after it. He's a little afraid, a little paranoid. Well, now, what if God waits until the exact right time and he breaks it all open and makes it visible? Not a tunnel. What if it's a crack 200 yards long and 50 or 100 feet wide that exposes it all? And he says it won't be shut. That, does, that, to me, says you find it, you're not going to shut it. Or if he opens it, you can't shut it. 
I've not developed that thought before this far. Now, if they can't be shut, what does that mean? It means that God opens something that is going to frustrate the liars, make the diviners mad, that turns wise men absolutely backward, upside down, and makes their knowledge foolish. Everything this world has thought it understood is going to be made to look absolutely foolish and stupid. That's how big this is. Let's read on. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. So God says he's going to go ahead of this Cyrus and he's going to remove the difficulties so that what is being searched for can be found. And it may be that the leaved gates, the hinged gates, the covering that is there, that has been put there to hide what is hidden, God will break himself. He'll lead the guy to the place, and then he will straighten things out. When he says, make the crooked straight, this is not referring just to the physical but to knowledge. He's going to make the crooked straight. Straighten out the understanding, which is going to make the world look like fools with their understanding. What about all these atheists? What about all these people that believe in evolution? All these people that don't believe there's a true God and that Jesus is still dead? A lot of these Mormons around us. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So he's speaking to Cyrus here directly, and he says, I'm going to open it up, and then you're going to know who I am, because you don't. And I wrote this man a letter quite a few years ago and told him about this passage and told him he didn't know God. Sometime later, he says, well, maybe I haven't really known God and I need to know him better. He didn't get it that he doesn't know God at all. He says, God can't do magic. God doesn't do magic. He believes in only science. And therefore, Noah's flood didn't occur in the way that we understand it in Scripture. Uh, the Red Sea didn't part the way we understand it in Scripture. That God just kind of had them build a dam and put beehives on it, and then they turned it loose and drowned a bunch of Egyptians. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know who God is. He doesn't know what God can do. So I think the power of God will be shown here, and God will open this up, and He will protect it. Yeah, all those people are going to want it. But God can protect it. He's hidden it there all these years. And it's there. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and the riches of secret places. Why? So that you will know who God is. 
I'm the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. Says it again. You're going to know who I am, and up to this point, you have not known me. I'm the one that gave you your last name, but you don't know me. So God has worked with this man for a long time, and he's doing it for Jacob, his servant's sake. The part of Jacob that is God's servant today is the church. More specifically, the remnant, 10% of the church. It's for their sake that this is being done. Because they, overall, are the witnesses of God. We saw three times just a little while ago. Now, when this man told me his story, and he's changed it some sense, he told me about how over in France a baby was handed to a farmer after a knock on the door and said, take care of this baby, uh, and if I'm not back in a year, it's yours, raise it. Didn't identify himself. He told me that they didn't know who the person was. Didn't know whose baby it was. And he didn't come back. Must have been killed. Well, when this, this kid took the name of the farmer that he had been given to for a while. And then when he joined the French Navy, he took the name Le Baron. The Baron. Or a name in that sense of royalty. But it was not his lineage. He had been a baby handed to a strange man. And that wasn't even the name that he took and lived by the rest of his life. It was LeBaron. So the LeBarons have been traced. And this guy thinks he goes all the way back to Christ and to Adam through the lineage of Israel uh, because of the LeBarons who they claim through Mormon genealogy go back there. Maybe they do. But this guy we're talking about was not born of that family. So when God says here, I have surnamed you, he means exactly what he said. And the man does not have a clue who his lineage truly is to this day. But he's taken his adopted lineage and claims it so that he can be the high priest of the church of the firstborn, which he thinks he represents. He has a rude awakening ahead of him. He doesn't know God, and God is the one that gave him the name, caused him to take LeBaron, the Baron, or uh, minor royalty. But he represents Cyrus, who was a king. But this was, is for the sake of God's true church. He says in verse 5 then, I am the eternal, and there is none else, there is no God beside me. Now what is the message of the church to this whole world? There is only one God. The beast and the false prophet are not God. Satan is not God. There's only one God. Now he said that several times since we started reading in chapter 40. And what he is going to do with these treasures and secret riches is show the world that he is God. Let's read on. 
There's none beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. He says it again. Three times he tells us, Cyrus, you have not known me. Now that's not Zerubbabel, the leader of the two witnesses who lays the foundation of the temple in Zechariah 4. This is talking about somebody who represents a Gentile king who has not known God, but through being partial Israelite, as Esther was Israelite, was friendly toward Israel. Third time, you have not known me. Now, what's the overall purpose of this? That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, all the way around the world, east to west, either direction you go, that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. He keeps emphasizing this. So what is buried and what is hidden, these treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, are so impressive and so powerful that they will establish that He is God. This isn't a little bit of Aztec treasure or something the Spaniards left behind. This has to do with God and the treasures of God. And I do believe the artifacts of the temple, the golden vessels, maybe even the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it, and the maps show that it is also a burial area. And that it is probably where some of the principal people of Israel are buried. In other words, this is a monstrous find. This will be so dramatic that it's not done in a closet, whether you go east or west. Anybody you find is going to have to know who God is based on what is about to be found by the one who says, to Jerusalem you'll be built, and to the temple your foundation will be laid. And he will use some of the treasures that are held there to do it, just like Cyrus opened up the treasury, and Ezra and Nehemiah used those proceeds to go build the temple and later the walls of Jerusalem. Going to be done again. This is an end-time prophecy, not anything else. And there's never been anything uncovered so far that you've ever read about or heard about that has proved to the whole world, east to west, that there's only one God. Now, what is the world going to do with that knowledge? They'll know it. It will make them foolish, drive them mad, and turn them over backward, and confound them and frustrate them. But it will prove that there's one God, always has been, from Adam to Noah to Abraham, on down through history, there is enough buried there to prove to the world that there's one God, that His promised land was right here, not in the Middle East. It is going to prove so many significant things but the world will do what? 
they will reject it. They can't disprove it. It will be so open and so plain, and it can't be shut. Cyrus can't shut it, and the world can't shut it. God is going to open it up and prove who he is to the whole wide world. And then they will try to cover it up. They will try to hide it. They will run from it. They will deny it. They will worship the beast of the false prophet and deny God. But he is going to make this so clear, so plain, by so much evidence, that they cannot deny who he is. You know what's happened in the past? When artifacts have been found that show that Israel inhabited this country, all across the country, the Smithsonian uh, Institute has taken all of those, put them in the cellar, and hid them. The Mormon Church gathered up all kinds of artifacts in this area, and they told their people, if you find any artifacts, bring them to the church. Where do they have them on display? They have hid them. They don't want people to know. They found Spanish cannons and swords and muskets and all kinds of things all over this area. And they hid them away. Why? Because it was obvious the Spaniards had been here mining and had had treasures here, and the Mormon church didn't want anybody to know about it except the Mormon church. So they hid all the evidence. Everything that's been found, they picked it clean. There's some stuff underground they didn't know about, and they haven't picked it clean. Brigham Young stood right there, and I heard Hurricane, might have been to Santa Clara, and said, within 50 miles of here are the greatest treasures ever known to man. And he had scouts out looking for it. And John Wesley Powell, representing the U.S. government, came looking for it. Ostensibly to survey, but really his purpose was to find the treasures. Hitler read about it somewhere and found out about it. During World War II, he had people here in Zion looking for these treasures. I met a man who was a child then, and he was with his father in Zion, and he met these Germans. And they actually told him that they were looking for these treasures. There are people who know. There are things written in the rocks out here who show. So this is a truly big deal. And once it's opened, they cannot shut it. So I don't care what their claims are, as tech. Hopi, Navajo, Spanish, Portuguese, English, the American government or whoever will be prevented from doing anything about it. It'll just be there and they'll see it. And everything that is written about in this book will be there to see. All this history will come out. And the Bible will be shown to be the Word of God. Now this Cyrus, and I do believe I know him, poo-poos the Bible constantly. He takes from it what he likes, 
But he says, the Catholics have perverted to the place you can't trust the Bible at all. He says, it's just a pagan book. How is he going to know who God is? He's going to see the things written in this book revealed. And it's going to scare him. And he's going to know who God is. And the whole world is. Brethren, do we begin to recognize what we are part of? The final work of God begins there in Isaiah 40. And it is going to become so powerful and so dominant that the world will have to know who God is, even though they will reject him. And once all this comes out, the two witnesses are going to go around and tell them, you've seen it. You know who God is. Part of their, part of their preaching will be about this right here, the things of God and the veracity of his word. That'll be a major part of their message because it shows that the beast and the false prophet are lying and that all these people thought they were smart or foolish. The whole world. I can't emphasize that enough. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. Incontrovertible truth or proof of who God is is going to be revealed geographically very near here very soon. He says, I'm the only one. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the eternal, do all these things. Now notice verse 8 in connection with the way I've been reading or imagining this. Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. So he is going to do this thing, probably himself, open the earth up to reveal these things in a way that they cannot be hidden nor denied. And he's going to do it for the sake of his people Jacob, who are the people who he will give his righteousness to. And let righteousness spring up together. So he's going to raise up a righteous people, and they're going to be involved with this treasure that Cyrus finds, and be doing the work of building Jerusalem and the temple. And this man will do God's pleasure and do the financing of it. Verse 9, Woe to them that strive with their Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Or Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What did you make? Or the work? He has no hands. Woe to him that says to his father, What did you beget? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? You, thus says the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you tell me. 
No, you're fools. You can't tell me. I'm the one that created it all. <laughs> Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, says the Eternal of hosts. God redeems his people. He sets them free. He breaks them at liberty, and they come and serve him. Then it talks about people who do come to help work. And they say, surely God is in you and there's no one else. There's no other God. So this is talking about people coming from overseas to come and work to build the temple. Because they say, God must be with you for all this to come forth and to prove who you are. Then it repeats in verse 16. All these people who think they're so smart, they shall be ashamed and also confounded. All of them. Not some of them, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. Yeah, it'll confuse them completely because they made the dollar an idol. They made Hollywood an idol. They made all kinds of idols themselves. And they're going to see things done that prove there's a God. But Israel shall be saved in the eternal with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He has established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Eternal and there is no one else. He is going to show this world through what He does, with his end time work, who he is. You are part of the biggest thing that has ever occurred on the face of the earth. Bigger than Noah's flood, bigger than the Red Sea, bigger than the Jordan running back, of the works that God has caused man to be involved in, this will be the greatest. Now, I won't say in the sense of the greatest thing, the greatest thing that's ever happened on this earth was Christ coming here and living. I don't mean that. That's obviously the greatest thing that has ever occurred. But even what he did here was not that dramatic so that the whole world understood who God was. He lived and spoke here in the southwest and died here, and the whole world did not know who God was as a result of his first visit. I mean, his first official as a baby and grew up and lived here. So it was, yes, very dramatic and very meaningful, and there's nothing greater than that in meaning. But as far as the work that God has done on the earth, the last is going to be the greatest and the most dramatic that has ever occurred. And you are already a part of it. It's already starting to happen. And the more dramatic parts of it are not far away. <clears throat> he says in verse 22, Look to me, and be you saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. So he says, What I have just opened and showed you, and you can't shut or deny, proves I'm God... Come to me, worship, and be saved. 
But they won't. And that's the message of the end time church and the two witnesses. Turn to God and be saved. But they won't. And they'll wind up killing them. But God is going to make it very abundantly clear. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the eternal have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So what he's saying here is that what I am revealing and what I am doing is going to be so powerful and I'm going to say to the world, turn to me and be saved. But we know from other scriptures they're going to reject everything. They're going to reject the word of God's witnesses, his two witnesses in particular, and kill them. But that doesn't mean God isn't going to call on them to repent. And he's going to use men to do it. But they won't until they are destroyed. Until after the seven last plagues, and Christ comes back and makes every knee bow and every tongue will swear by him. Because by the time this is all done, they're not going to listen to his treasures. They're not going to listen to his preachers. The only thing they will listen to is utter devastation. Till there's not more than a hundred million out of 7.4 billion left on the face of the earth that are alive. And they will bend their knee and their head and worship him in the millennium. That's where this is all headed. This is going to be the biggest tent revival ever. This is going to be the biggest work that is ever done. It is going to be so huge that it kills all but a small remnant of people on the face of the earth. And it is going to cause a conversion of the whole world. So it's got to be pretty big, doesn't it? How much conversion did Christ's message do? How much conversion did James, Peter, Paul, and John and the others accomplish? How much conversion did Herbert Armstrong, the so-called Elijah to come, accomplish? Out of all that has happened up to now, and will happen in the next few years, only 144,000 total will have been truly converted. From Adam until now. And they'll be the bride of Christ, the first fruits. The rest have to be turned to God after that. But it is what you and I are preparing right now that is going to lead to this kind of work. You are part of the most exciting time in history, the most exciting work that will ever have been done. God has brought you here. Now, that's hard to grasp. I know that. I think about it. And I have to deal with it, because who am I? Who are you? Who are we? We're nothing. We have nothing to brag about. Nothing to 
be vain or egocentric or egoistic about. We're nothing. The weak of the world. But he's called us to what? Confound the wise. Put in a little different terms. Isn't that what we just read? Frustrate the tokens of the liars. Make diviners mad that turn wise men backward and make their knowledge utterly foolish. That's confounding the wise. And he's called the foolish of the world to show his power through so that the world will look at them and say, well, what are these? They're my people. And they worship me. And because they worship me, I bless them and I protect them and I take care of them. And you could be one of them if you would just accept it. I hadn't really thought about it in this way, but this is I, chapter 44 and 45 here is some of the greatest uh, preaching that the witnesses have to do. To point to what God has opened and that cannot be shut that proves to the whole world that He is God. And then they take that message and say, there it is. Fly over it. Look at it. <laughs> Go take pictures of it. It won't be shut. There's only one God. That'll be a major part of the message because it's one of the major things God does. It's pretty major if it proves to the whole world that there's only one God and who He is. That's pretty major. Nobody's done that yet. But it's just about to happen. <clears throat> Let's continue just a little more here. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. So now he talks about the world's idols, the things that they've looked to. He says, they're all going to be bent over and stooped because they're going to see this incredible thing that God is going to do Crack the earth open and prove the Bible to be true from cover to cover. And who he is. Yeah? They're a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. He says, Hearken to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, carried from the womb. <coughs> Even you old ones. I'm God. And even to, uh, to whore hairs will I carry you, gray-headed. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. What is he saying, Haggai? That there will be old men who will be able to see all this, and they will be renewed to do the work. So it doesn't matter how old we are, God will show it. And that's part of the deal, too. Error, lame, blind, deaf, cripples, healed, and renewed as eagles to do God's work. That's part of the signs and wonders that God is going to do as well. And the witnesses can use that. We've seen all these people healed. They're up running around now. They don't even get tired when they work. Verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. 
How many times does he say that through here? Over and over and over. Read the book of Ezekiel, and he says actually dozens of times, and they shall know that I am the eternal. He is going to do things that absolutely prove it. There's not going to be any evolutionists left, no atheists left, no nominal Christians left, no heathen pagans left that don't know who God is by what he does here. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Uh, Verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So he's going to bring his people to Zion, and there they will be his witnesses that he is God. And these treasures are going to be found in the area of Zion. And opened up there, because Jerusalem and Zion will become the focal points of God's government on this earth. The only place that is a place of refuge and safety for those who will serve God. So this is all right together. And salvation will be in Zion for Israel, His glory. And your salvation and mine can be assured right there if we're serving our God with all our heart, all our soul, body, and mind. We are are part of something that is greater than than anything God has done up until this time through men upon this earth. And the dramatic part is not very far off. I won't go to chapter 47, but he tells Babylon to go sit in the dust because she's going to be destroyed in the next chapter. So he's leading up to what is about to start happening in this country. And Isaiah 47 and Revelation 18 fulfilled... Ezekiel 5, the famine, the pestilence, the captivity, the death, and the sword are coming on the nation. And the only ones that are going to be protected are that remnant who will believe that God is God and in faith and without fear serve Him and do His end-time work. There's more to it than what we've gotten, but that's plenty for today.